Hello, one and all. Welcome back to yet another episode of History Spelunkers. It's your favorite show where we delve deep into the forgotten annals of our history and share the stories of what we find about the niche and obscure. I am your host, Kelvin, he and pronouns, and joining me today are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Say hi. Hi, my name's Ashlyn. My pronouns are she, her. Hello, my name is Kelly. And welcome back to the show. It is that time of year, the most wonderful time of year, as they say, our annual Christmas show. Woo! Woo! Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. All the holidays. All the other ones that unfortunately ones. we don't commercialize and culturalize in the American culture in the same way. Woo! I do have a question. Yeah. What happens when a bell rings? Angel gets his wings. And which American classic film is that from? From one of the best winter classics of all times. Oh, I, I know it. I watch it every year. Oh my god. If you don't it's so wonderful life. Yes. There okay. we go. I was going to say Home Alone. Oh. Which actually, it just got put into the National Film Registry. There you go. One Day Home Alone? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. It and Nightmare Before Christmas just <gasps> got put into oh. the... Library of Congress's National Film Registry. That's so exciting. That's Excellent fun. choices. Those yeah. are true. Those are my top two Christmas films. Is Fred yeah. Claus in the National Film Registry? Probably not. <laughs> Elf? Oh, Elf should Probably be. Probably not. But honestly. it's such a classic. I can look that up real quick. Let's see. Did you see the Elf on the Shelf um, that got eaten? No. <laughs> Someone like jokingly like put out like chicken bones with ketchup and and a note from Santa that was like the elf was tasty like had the cookies for dessert. So my parents <laughs> that is horrifying. Kids. That is sort of traumatizing. I do feel bad for parents now because I feel like it, the the older I get the more stressful Christmas kind of becomes because you know as a kid it's all about like having fun and getting presents yeah. and like going to like parties at school and as an adult it's like a lot more stressful because you're like planning your travel your social life gets really busy with all these events and you have to shop and you're spending so much money and like I'm going to be traveling like over Christmas and it was like this whole thing in my family just trying to figure out like how and when everyone's gonna like be together and like the older you get the more stressful it is and I can't yeah. imagine if I had kids like adding them into the equation of like all of your Christmas events and planning and I feel like a lot of parents now even at my job are talking about like how much they hate Elf on the Shelf because like Aww. so I'm, many I'm kids have it and so glad we never did that no like my mom would have lost her mind I think she could not have handled like one more stressful event at Christmas but like literally they were saying how one of my coworkers was like we didn't want to do it but all the other kids at school started getting elves and then my daughters were like sad because they didn't know we're like their elf was mm. so then like they kind of had to give into the pressure and do elf on the shelf even though it is kind of a lot of work to yeah to do yeah no crazy answer question no elf is not in the national film registry Boo. it is eligible to be voted in let's do it but how do we do that i have no idea that's next episode <laughs> Anywho, whoop-de-woo. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is our Christmas episode, and the story isn't obscure in the sense that people don't know that it happened, but because it's my show, I don't think people talk about it enough. 
I probably don't know that it happened. So that might be the case either. <laughs> so, um, like, it might be brought up in a history test textbook as, like, a thing that happened, but... But I didn't read those. Oh, well, there you go. So, I guess, before we get too far off track, let's dive down the rabbit hole. How much do y'all know about World War One? Honestly, more than it's probably reasonable. I know, like, Austria. Yeah. yeah. That's it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Well, what would you say is more than reasonable? Like, what's a reasonable amount to know about World War One? Like, I know more than the general basics, and I would consider the basics sure. to be that, like, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and that it triggered all of these, like, alliances in Europe, and mm -hmm. that's what created the first, like, allied and Axis powers, and all these different countries in Europe had, like, specific agreements. And the war ended with Germany basically taking the fall for the entire Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire, like, collapsed during the war. And there wasn't really another person, or not person, but nation for them to scapegoat. So essentially, Germany ended up paying kind of the entire sum cost for the war. They were made to, like, really suffer, um, like, economically and socially in Europe as a result of allying with the wrong side of the war. And then it ultimately led to World War II after Japan Germany suffered like decades of horrible economic outlook and their government was really unstable. And, and the beautiful Weimar Republic. Oh, yeah. Miss yeah. them. Miss that. Right. So anyway, that's, I, I, yeah, I, I know I, a decent amount. Bravo. And then, yeah. Bravo. And then there's like more that I would not add because it's boring because World War One is not the more exciting <laughs> war. Yeah, like you've touched on with, as people could probably guess from all that, World War One does not have the same historical meta narrative for it as compared to its sequel. I would say it just doesn't have the same vibe. Yeah, no, it, it's very complex, convoluted, and boring. I guess, yeah, <laughs> like it just the, the fronts don't move. It's very depressing yeah. because Trench there's warfare. no good guys or bad guys. There's not like a side that wins in any like real tangible sense. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there's a side that declares victory and as you're saying, like exacts reparations, but like it wasn't like some big decisive all out battle that ended it. Everyone just kind of got tired and ran out of money and had social problems at home that they couldn't keep fighting the war and also i would argue that it is just inherently a less cool war because there is in fact a marvel superhero dedicated to being a world war ii veteran there is no marvel world war one situation happening true i mean wonder woman's in world war one yeah is she well that's dc which is yeah. just way less cool than marvel generally sure. but uh, I did fall asleep watching Wonder Woman because it took place in World War One. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. <laughs> sorry. If that doesn't prove that World War One is the more boring war, I don't know what does. <laughs> Never fall asleep during Captain America. I mean, how could you? Chris Evans, please. Yeah, so. But, uh, yeah, so as we'll go into this podcast, you already touched on a decent amount of it, Ashlyn, but for the listeners, I'll just go ahead and 
do the best to explain of how the war started just because it factors into our Christmas story. Mm. But it's going to be complicated. Honestly, you know, it's... You, you can zone out for the next few minutes. It's going to be a lot. But, um... Or not, and learn a bunch of stuff. No, don't know. zone out. Listen. Uh, so... Summer 1914 Europe. It's a very tenuous state. Leading up to this point, all of the so-called great nations of the world were in like this giant balancing act uh, where each nation had all these empires and they're trying to compete and outdo one another while also trying to keep anybody else from outdoing anybody else. Be basically... Napoleon happened a hundred years prior to this point, and that scared the shit out of everybody. And they never wanted another Napoleon to happen, so they're all just trying to get. They're trying to themselves become Napoleon, but not let anybody else become a big Cold War type situation. If everyone's Napoleon, no one's Napoleon. Yes, so true. Also, we saw Napoleon. Great film. Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix was phenomenal. I, yeah. It was good. I, Kelly was less enthused. Yeah. I don't blame her. I, I love three-hour-long white man biopics. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do. I can't die. Uh, but, uh, so anyways, that's kind of like the situation. But we're about to throw a giant brick into that because you got these giant uh, growing forces of colonialism and nationalism that are starting to come into play. And... It starts breaking how this balancing act works because mm -hmm. people start coming to power that were not there when the rules were written, and so they don't know how to make the rules apply to them. As at Europe, I mean. Okay. Um, so, like, leading up to this point, like, in Africa... Their big goal as these empires is to try not to have a gigantic war. <clears throat> so like in Africa, whenever they're doing all this colonialism stuff, they aren't wanting to have a giant war over this continent. Mm -hmm. So they have a conference where they draw all the straight lines on the map. And it's like, okay, France, you'll get this chunk. England will get this chunk. Germany, you get this chunk. And so instead of it being like what happened in North America, where there's probably like a dozen wars between England and France to decide who got Ohio. They no. had the one conference and... Was this the Balfour conference or is that later? No, Berlin conference okay. was Africa specifically. Um, but yeah, so this whole system as it was existing now was known the Concert of Europe because we like to give it fancy name. But Prussia was the big rock that gets thrown into the gears here. Mm -hmm. Because Prussia, who we now know as Germany, uh, in the 1880s, they start to have this growing tide of nationalism where they want to unify all the different German people that are spread across a bunch of different small duchies and princeps and kingdoms and all this kind of stuff. They want to unify them all into one German nation, of course, under the Prussian king. Mm. So they begin going through a bunch of different wars, annexing all these different areas 
in the goal of unifying a German empire. And part of these wars kind of end in the 1880s with the Franco-Prussian War, where France loses some territory to the new Prussia. But not only that, the King of Prussia announces the creation of the German Empire in the Palace of Versailles and has his coronation ceremony there. Mm. And that pisses France off. And so for the next 30 years, their whole goal is to try and reclaim the lands that Germany stole from them and just do whatever they can to get back, get some vengeance. Okay. Germany knows that France is mad at them, and so they want to isolate France from being able to do any sort of revenge. Okay. Because okay. they like, oh, we won. We want this new status quo to stay. Mm -hmm. And so these separate motivations cause each of them to go to the other players at the table, that is Europe, England, Russia, newly created Italy, to create a bunch of these military alliances to try and one-up the other in a Cold War type situation. And they be, there's a bunch of different ones that change hands, but the ones that we want to care about are the Triple Alliance, which is the Empire of Germany, Empire of Austria-Hungary, and Italy. And then you have the Triple Entente, which is France, Britain, and the Russian Empire. Like I said, basically there's a Cold War situation here where if someone attacks one of the nations in the other alliance, everyone gets drawn into this war. Damn. But because it's kind of like a mutually assured destruction situation, for a few years, yeah, it, it works. No one goes to war, or at least nothing gigantic. So the crisis point comes in June of 1914. Austro-Hungarian Empire controls a vast stretch of Central and Eastern Europe, primarily in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the rising tide of nationalism is becoming a thing, leading to the creation of places like Germany and Italy. But that also means in these gigantic empires that stretch over a bunch of different nationalities and ethnicities, they each want to be their own nation inside. They don't want to be part of this empire anymore. Hmm. And so on June 18th, the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was visiting the city of Sarajevo, which was in one of these regions that did not want to be part of the empire anymore. Mm -hmm. And while driving through the city, an assassin threw a grenade at the motorcade, but he missed the car with the Archduke, but several Austrian soldiers got injured in the process, but the Archduke made it out safely. Later that day, the Archduke goes to visit the hospital that those soldiers were recovering in, and as he was leaving the hospital, his car took a wrong turn off of the secured road, and one of the assassins that tried to kill him earlier in the day just so happened to be standing there and was able to get round two where he Damn. ran up to the car with a pistol and was able to assassinate the Archduke and his wife. And this young man was Gavrilo Princip and he was a 
Serbian. Now, that's a part I haven't established yet because they're not one of the big players. Serbia is mm-hmm. kind of a little small guy on the block. <clears throat> um, that is crazy. I did not realize that he like survived an assassination attempt the same day before he was actually assassinated. Yes, yeah. and it's just because his driver took a wrong turn and was like in the process of like trying to get back onto the route that. He should never have cared about his guards and visited them in the hospital. I mean, you know, if you're going to be an authoritarian leader, Mm -hmm. you just can't have any emotion. Stick to it, yeah. Or at least, like, have a GPS system, you know? I get it's 1914, but, like, come on. You don't got ways? (laughs) (laughs) So, Gavrilo Princi, he was a Serbian. He was, like, a guy not involved in any of this stuff. Okay. Um, And because... (laughs) This is so convoluted. Okay. So, basically, Austria-Hungary had invaded an area, whatever, uh, that had Sarajevo in it, that had Serbian people, Bosnian Serbs in it. Okay. Which is different from the Kingdom of Serbia right next door. Because it was a Serbian that killed the Archduke, the Austro-Hungarian Empire thought that the kingdom of Serbia either had something to do with it, or even if they didn't, they needed to be punished. Mm. I'm so stupid for that. (laughs) True. So they make a list of demands to the kingdom of Serbia that they know the kingdom of Serbia, for political reasons, can't or won't acquiesce to. So that way they then have a pretense to go to war with them. Classic. Russia gets involved because they, as another Slavic group of people, view themselves as like a protector of Serbia. And so they're like, hey, stop picking on my little bro. And so they begin to partially mobilize their military forces as kind of like a show of force to be like, yo, don't do anything. Germany, in this alliance with Austria-Hungary, sees this Russian mobilization as an act of aggression directed towards their bro, and so they begin to mobilize and order Russia that if they do not stop mobilizing their troops, that it will be seen as an act of war. So they have a deadline, start of August, that for all this, like, coalescing stuff to happen and if it doesn't happen we're gonna go to war okay well as it progresses and it looks more and more likely that this war is gonna go down the germans know about the russian french alliance so they know that if they end up going to war against russia that france is inevitably gonna get drawn into it so in their big brain master plan they were going to go and do like a preemptive strike against France because oh, they're we hate them still because you know they we're, already were beefing with yeah France. we're already beefing and it's they're closer to us anyways and so we might as well go ahead invade them capture Paris and we'll get that done in like three weeks tops and by that time Russia won't even be across Poland yet and so we can go and do our whole thing against them. 
Yeah, so we're going to start the war against France first in order to get at Russia. Um, but in order to get to France, we can't just go straight into France mm -hmm. because they're going to be expecting that. So we have to go through Belgium, which mm. is neutral. They have no oh, sides no. in any of this. They have other alliances, but like they're not part of any of these like big spiderweb type things. And so by August happens and none of these preconditions happen. And so Europe, all of Europe finds itself at war. Germany invades, goes to attack France, but violates the neutrality of Belgium, which drags in France, it drags in England. Mm. Austro-Hungary is now going to war with Serbia, which is dragging in Russia. Germany's fighting a war on both fronts. It's turned into a whole thing. And chaos. we're just Completely going chaos. at it now. And like I said earlier, Europe had not had a war with this many players since Napoleon, so like 100 years. Mm -hmm. And all of the wars that had occurred during that interim of the Concert of Europe if they did even happen on the European continent, they were very short affairs. Mm -hmm. Like the Franco-Prussian War was six months. The Russo-Turkish War was 10 months. The Spanish-American War, which was in the same time period, um, was three months. The Serb-Bulgarian War, one month. Austro-Prussian War, one month. There's even a war called the 30-Day War. Dang. Like, these were all brief affairs People just get out their aggressions and we just go back to living our normal happy lives. All this to say, the war is starting in August. Everyone's expecting to be finished by the end of the year, by Christmas. Maybe we'll be here, you know, till next summer, tops. So Germany quickly advances into France, initially leading all this to believe that, yeah, this is going to be quick. They're making a whole lot of progress. They're super close to Paris. They haven't met any real opposition because of how fast everything's going. Yeah, this is going to be quick. Well, they kind of hit a wall. And the French army kind of doesn't let them advance any further. Mm. And so they're like, okay, we'll go to north and try to, like, flank around the side of them. Well, France goes up there and stops them. Mm. And so, like, this period of going back and forth, each trying to get around... Mm -hmm because they can't go through each other, they go all the way up until they hit the ocean and they can't go around each other anymore. Oh man. And so now they're like, well shit, we we're kind of stuck here. And so they all begin to dig in trenches and then basically the Western front of the war does not move for four years. Oh. It is like, it does not bulge. They are unable to make any sort of progress using any type of technique against each other, nothing happens. And all of these soldiers, they're out there expecting, like, they weren't out there for any, like, there wasn't a major tragedy in most of the cases. Yeah. That was like a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor that inspired them to go to war. You know, it's all about national pride and doing it for like the adventure of going off to war mm -hmm. with your bros um because <laughs> you got nothing else that? to do i mean yeah 
And like the kings of England, Germany, and Russia were all first cousins. <laughs> what? Wait, I'm sorry. That's a critical fact that I have never heard. Like the king of England, George V, I think it was, mm -hmm. and Tsar Nicholas II of Russia look identical to each other. Oh my. No so way. all of these people who are fighting these atrocious wars are actually all related. Yeah, and like <laughs> they had picnics <laughs> together and they were. You know, great grandma was, or their grandma was Queen Victoria. I'm sorry, that's and, actually the most heinous thing I've ever heard when you think about how many people died in World War One in horrific warfare. Yeah. For these people to have, like, like an argument. Like, these people were literally using people's lives to have an argument that they could have had over the Thanksgiving dinner table. Yes. What? Like, here's, I'm showing them a picture right now of George V and Tsar Nicholas. Take a pic on who's who, right? They yeah. literally look so similar. They have the same exact beard, haircut. Really, the only difference, if you know what to look for, is one of them has, like, a more chubby face. Yeah. But they literally have the same face shape. Like, they're, yeah. like, features of... That is, like, actually insane to think about how many people died fighting in World War One, And these people literally could have, like, had a meal to figure out these differences. Yeah, and, like, literally, they're writing letters to each other occasionally during this period where they're, like... You know, I don't want to be doing this, but we kind of got to do this because you're being, you know, a little bitch, baby. It's like, nah, uh you are. And so it's, yeah, there's all these people are out there for national pride because, you know, it's good to serve your country. And, you know, you know it's not going to be that bad. Um oh. It is just, like, insane. I feel like when you read a lot of the history, like, I didn't even realize they were related, and I feel like I knew a pretty decent amount of World War One. but it is kind of insane what they would pass off as civility. I mean, this war was truly, like, butchery, passed off as, like, European civility and warfare, and I think it was... It was one of those wars where I feel like as a, as a global society, people realized that, like, things were never going to be the same, and that all these, I don't know... A lot of these countries were, like, very wealthy, sending all these people off to die for arguments and for disputes that they really had no business sending people to die over. I mean, it truly was butchery past a civility for, like, years and horrific. I mean, just horrible to think about, genuinely, the loss of life. But this is a Christmas episode, so we're yeah. going to bring the tone back up. Well, yeah, I mean, but, like, the civility you're talking about, like, on the front lines, you know... For the most part, there was an attitude of, they call it live and let live. You know, if you're two sides of the front on the Western front, if it's somewhat quiet, you're not actively under orders to like try and advance. You're just sitting in your trenches across from each other. Small amounts of groups in these section, these quiet sectors would simultaneously and kind of spontaneously develop strategies to not really try to actively kill each other mm. because they it's basically the understanding of i don't want to piss them off because if they're pissed they're going to try harder to kill me mm -hmm. and so it was you know people have gone and studied this and it's like a early like sort of prisoner's dilemma mm. of the troops on the front lines where by both of them not acting it's the greater the least bad situation for both sides. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for example, snipers in each front 
would like get into schedules where they would know when the other side was having their meals for the day and they would know not to shoot them while they're having lunch because that's civil. Why would I do that? Yeah. Um, Because if I make them mad, they're going to shoot me while I'm trying to have my lunch and I want to have my lunch. And some of these trenches were close enough to where, like, you could talk back and forth at each other. You know, a lot of times, yeah, you're just yelling and, you know, trying to, you know, be a tough guy. Well, fuck you, man. Well, fuck you. And going back and forth. But, you know, it just, you're that close to each other. So you don't want to actively piss people off. And moreover, occasionally you'll be like, hey, I'm going to go over to get some of my dead man, dead troops out in no man's land. You can go out. Let's just not shoot each other and we can both get our guys out of there. Mm -hmm. And so you end up with all these situations of live and let live. And also the quieter your section of the front is, you know, the less noise of that gets back up to your higher up so they're not thinking about you if you're not at the front of their mind then you're not where they're actively trying to point to try and move the front a bit you know yeah like you kind of have the leeway to sort of like get away with some of this but it is interesting when you think about like it's not it obviously wasn't a civil war because all these nations are fighting against each other but in a big way i mean these these countries were all like very close and a lot of mm-hmm. these people I'm sure like I'm sure a lot of German people you know even if their countries were at war had like French friends maybe French family members like it, lots of British people spent lots of time abroad in these places like it's interesting because it is sort of a, a similar dynamic to like the US Civil War in terms of like people who actually are in a lot of ways very like similar I mean obviously mm-hmm. there are important differences but they're not like you know, vastly, vastly different cultures of people. Like, Europe as a whole has a lot of shared, like, culture and history. So it's interesting to think about World War II and that, or World War One in that context of all these people who have probably been to each other's countries, who know people of the same nationality, like, being forced to then kind of fight at the front lines against one another. And then, yeah, these examples show that a lot of people, you know, did have a lot of empathy and sympathy for the other side, regardless of what you know, their personal allegiance was, which is really interesting when you think about in World War Two, just how many people, you know, didn't want to shoot or kill, you know, people who belong to, like, their neighboring country. Yeah. Like, I, like, people have gone back and, like, studied the international systems and stuff, and immediately prior to World War One, it was one of, like, the most interconnected cosmopolitan world systems like rivaling even like internet times of just like the ways people were able to reach out and the trade systems of going stretching everywhere which is so vastly interconnected and then it just all shatters at this Mm -hmm. point so yeah you know you have the regular everyday fighting men who are going about trying not to get themselves killed Mm -hmm. And these incidents of live and let lives were, you know, despised by the brass and upper ranks Mm -hmm. because they're trying to win a war. And it's 
not good for wars if you have both sides fraternizing with each other and have really no motivation and to like go out and kill people you know that's, like stop recognizing humanity you know so they would do their best to try and quote like instill the correct fighting spirit in their troops you know through the use of propaganda and planning attacks with the primary motivation being not to actually advance sometimes, mm -hmm. but to have them fight at each other so that way then they're now mad at each other and will continue to fight with each other. So that's the situation mm -hmm. in this early stage of the war. So the main focus of this Christmas tale is... Perhaps the largest and most widespread example of this live-and-let-live attitude. The Christmas Truce of 1914. Aww. That sounds cute. So, like you kind of touched on, Ashlyn, even only a few months into this war, the casualties were astronomical thanks to the newly industrialized nature of warfare. Mm-hmm. Like, something like 600,000 people had already been killed in the first four months. And yet very little land was actually right. achieved. So the scale of this death was, and the fact that nothing was happening, was already leading a lot of groups of people across the world to call for peace, or at least some kind of, like, ceasefire. Um, because obviously this isn't working. Uh, there's a group of British suffragettes who published what was known as the Open Christmas Letter. Mm. And it was addressed to the women of Germany. And in it, they expressed their hope for some type of peace. And so I'm going to read you some bits of this letter that they published in the newspapers. Mm. Sisters, some of us want to send you a word at the sad Christmas tide though we can but speak through the press. This Christmas message sounds like mockery to the world at war, but those of us who wished and still wish for peace may surely offer a solemn greeting to some of you who feel the same as we do. And then it goes on later in the letter, quote, Though our sons are sent to slay each other, we will let no bitterness enter into this tragedy tragedy made sacred by the lifeblood of our best, nor mar with hate the heroism of their sacrifice. And it goes on to express regret over the modern state of the war and the vast scale of all the death and destruction. And it kind of ends with the this really uh, poetic line that peace on earth is gone but the renewal of our faith that it still reigns at the heart of things and Christmas should strengthen all to strive for its return. Hmm. So yeah, a very nice open letter, but they couldn't actually send it to the women of Germany because there were systems in place to prevent communication between the two countries' citizens because they're at war. And so they actually had to publish that letter in the United States. Oh, wow. And so then it took a few months for the people in Germany to actually get it. And then they ended up responding back in like March being like, 
we got your letter. Yeah, we want the war to end too, but it sucks. This is happening. Um, Damn. I didn't know this, but apparently the new pope who was at the time, uh, Pope Benedict the 14th, Wow. who started like two months before World War One did. Oh, dang. Uh, he called the war, quote, the suicide of Europe. Ooh. And basically his entire goal was try to negotiate from his neutral position as not being a member of any of these nations that are currently fighting with each other. And he was like, hey, y'all, it's Christmas time. Let's have a stop because Jesus... <laughs> Um, at least for a little bit, and all the nations were like, we don't want to listen to you. <laughs> they were like, they were that, like can you offer stupid. us land or money? Yeah. And he like, was like, no. And they were like, get fucked. Yeah, because half of the countries weren't Catholic, and so they're like, we don't gotta listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> the church, like, the church of, like, England literally was like, we actually made an entire church for the sole purpose of not having to listen to you. Yeah, and then France, who is Catholic, was like, no, they invaded us! Screw you! And so, Dang. yeah, uh, people didn't like the Pope, apparently, or at least he wasn't all that successful in trying to call for any type of ceasefire in the name of God. But, um, you know, Christmas is approaching, the war is still going on, but the weather during this time is miserable, <laughs> understandably. Uh, most days it's near freezing, and pretty much every day it's raining for some amount of time. So you're sitting in a hole six feet deep and an inch or a foot wide maybe Whoa. you know or probably like two or three feet for the most part mm -hmm. but enough for you to just stand there maybe kind of lean against a wall in the mud in the rain you're cold your boots are sogging through your feet are rotting off you know it's not a fun time Ooh. Oh yeah, trench foot. I've told yeah, you about that. it's not it's not a great place to be spending the holidays. No. And so, um, in a couple of days before Christmas, in some of these quiet sectors of the front, a couple of the troops who are close enough to be yelling at each other, you know, the usual masculine bombastic shit, uh, they begin to like soften their tones because like. It's we, we all mutually agree it sucks here. Mm -hmm. And so, and because it's Christmas, they kind of start like taking on a more like festive attitude. Um, you know, like saying, hey guys, Merry Christmas. It sucks, doesn't it? Like, yeah, man. Um, start joking with each other, Ooh. fraternizing. And then you get a true Christmas miracle happen. Mm. And... What I'm going to describe is kind of like haphazard. Like, it wasn't all over the front. It wasn't organized to any extent. It just simultaneously and spontaneously sort of happened in all these different areas to varying extents. Um, okay. But I, the basics of it is, is that starting around Christmas Eve, British and French troops in different regions of the front began to see lights go up on the German front. And upon further investigation, 
they saw that they were putting up like Christmas lights and some of them even putting up Christmas trees in the trenches mm -hmm. and Christmas Eve was it's the bigger German Christmas time that's the time they do all their presents and stuff and so they realize like what's going on and even in like the quiet of the night they can hear some of the Germans singing Christmas carols and stuff trying to celebrate the holiday mm -hmm. and so in solidarity, British troops began, like, singing along, too. And from the countryside, you know, things kind of go quiet. And between the songs and the season's greetings, they kind of come to a general consensus of, like, hey, guys, tomorrow's Christmas. If you don't shoot, we won't shoot. And so on Christmas Day, 1914... Over a hundred thousand troops all along the Western Front, simultaneously and without orders, ceased hostilities in observance of the holiday. Wow. And the rain stopped. The weather kind of got nice. Aww. I mean, it's still cold, but yeah. they are not wet at least. And so they took the time to like leave their trenches, kind of do repairs and bury their dead. But... Some of them even went out into no man's land, past the barbed wire, to shake hands with their opposing soldiers, share a cigarette, you know, maybe even, like, give presents, because it's Christmas. Aww. And, you know, these are supposed to be their supposed enemies. And so, and luckily for them, a lot of German soldiers knew enough English to be able to make small talk. And so, yeah, like, he, they're just all sitting around, shooting the breeze, chatting, Aww. and having a wonderful Christmas time. Some of them even held church services together in the middle of no man's land. That's wow. so sweet. And, like, one of the more iconic scenes from this day is the prevalence of you having multiple battalions taking time during this to play soccer with each other in the middle of a war zone Aww. with the people you're supposed to be trying to kill. They, you know, not really a whole lot of records exist of like any actual games happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like there really is not, you know, okay, we'll get a team here. You get a team there. Here's our goals. And we're going to keep scoring 90 minutes on the clock. That really wasn't happening. Um, you know, they're kind of just kicking balls around. Guys being dudes, as you will. <laughs> um, like, some people were even, like, kicking around cans because Aww. they didn't have proper soccer balls because you're in a literal war zone. War zone. Yeah. <laughs> they're playing kick the can. Um, and so, yeah, uh, in, in a lot of these places, the truce lasted all day. Some places made it to the 26th because for the British, that's Boxing Day. That's also a holiday. No reason to shoot each other. Some people even made it to New Year's. Wow. Of like just, yeah, we're just not going to fight because it's the holidays. But fortunately, this peace would not last. People started shooting again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Many of the commanding officers were furious with the troops that participated in the truce. It was seen as insubordination and unpatriotic encounter to the war effort. 
So several participants were court-martialed. Wow. Um, and because not every part of the front, like it wasn't organized, and so you had neighboring sectors who one sector might be participating in the front, and then you kind of get to the edge between these two sectors where they're under different controls. One side didn't get the memo, so they see a bunch of opposing soldiers kind of just standing around in no man's land. So sometimes the truce got cut short by people not understanding what's happening and then firing into the crowd. So yeah, it it broke apart eventually and attacks were planned to get them back into the proper fighting spirit and stuff. And the war moves on, but you know, this truce happened and the higher ups don't want troops that didn't participate in it to know that this thing happened because mm -hmm. they're like, well, shit, I didn't get Christmas off, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, so communication through the front about the Christmas truce was very slow spreading like it took years for some to hear that this had happened wow. um and to going back to the home front it was also slow moving just because the way the mail system worked but also because it was often censored because you know, they don't want people getting the war effort disrupted at home we have all this propaganda you know like in england we have all this propaganda saying how the German Empire is full of Huns and barbarians and they're coming to rape and pillage our people and we can't have that happen. But no, they started singing Christmas songs and invited our troops over and had a nice time and they're humans. No, we can't have that. And so for weeks there was like this unofficial news embargo about writing about the Christmas truce. Because... How are they, ex like, partially because there's the efforts against it, but also, like, how do you change the tone that suddenly, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's like if even your own soldiers are, like, able to put their arms down and, like, share a cigarette and, you know, maybe play a game or, you know, like, treat their enemies with human decency and kindness. Like, how are you as a people then supposed to, like, maintain your vitriol when the people right. who are on the front lines are... Yeah, they're not even able to maintain their vitriol and like hatred for the other side. Exactly. So, but uh, after a few weeks, the New York Times, not being a party to any of the nations in this war at the moment, mm. they broke the story. And so then other newspapers were able to follow suit. Mm -hmm. And you know, at first, people didn't know what to think of it. They thought it was like the root, like it was a rumor. Or just a story people made up to, for the Christmas season. Like, it, oh, it didn't actually happen. Because there's a couple other, like, wartime myths that were going on about, like, there's one battle where supposedly a bunch of angels came down and protected some British soldiers. You know, it's like, <laughs> we understand that that didn't actually happen. But it's a good story, right? Yeah. But eventually, like, photographs came out of... All these troops just like hanging out together, kicking soccer balls and putting up Christmas trees. And letters from people on the front lines started to get leaked mm. out into the public. And so it becomes this like huge media sensation. 
um, at least in the English-speaking world, because mm -hmm. in France and Germany, the freedoms of the press were not as open, mm -hmm. and so they had a much more successful time at clamping down on all those narratives, and they're also like, the Western Front is going through their countries, so mm. they're also have a more vested interest in keeping a wrap on things. Fair. But, um, yeah, if you're listening to the episode on one of the services that has, like, art or a photo for each episode, the one for this episode is a colorized photo from one of the interactions on that day. Um, but there's dozens of others of mm -hmm. just large groups of people just standing around because again like what else are we gonna do right <laughs> it's yeah. christmas so they didn't but it went on for four years and it only happened the first year yeah mm -hmm. they did not happen after this first christmas and that's for a variety of reasons um like we've already established like the commanders were we can't let this shit happen again mm -hmm. So they're really doing their damnedest to keep their troops fighting each other. Um, and so, like, there's punishment for any troops involved, planning military actions during times where they expect a truce might take place mm -hmm. in order to just have them engaged in fighting so they don't have time to think about truce. Mm -hmm. um, and just don't want people you don't want to fraternize with someone who just killed your best friend two days ago right mm -hmm. and just as the war progresses it becomes exponentially more horrible to the part where it hardens everyone's hearts mm -hmm. like that they, they it, the situation just becomes so drained of any type of humanity because of the machine of war just mm. kept going on and on. You have all these new technologies at, that are causing devastation. You have aerial warfare, so you can drop mm. bombs on people for the first time. You got chemical warfare, you know, chlorine gas, mustard gas. You got artillery weapons that are these gigantic guns that can shoot you from mm -hmm. like 10 miles away. Oh God. Like just this brutal industrial machine guns that can just wipe out an entire crowd like that. Um, you also have propaganda who is portraying each side as these bloodthirsty savages and are reporting on, you know, war crimes, real or imagined that each side is committing against each other as far as like raping or um, like there's reports of, you know, oh, they crucified one of our troops, like literally nailed him to like a piece of wood or something and Ooh. put him up in no man's land. Gosh. Or um, in London, there was a bombing campaign by the Zeppelin, like the big balloons. Yeah. And it's like they made it to London and they're dropping bombs and the London public starts calling them baby killers, <gasps> the bombs that are mm -hmm. dropping, because, I mean, they did, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you you don't want to have Christmas with people who are funding baby killers, right? And 
all this stuff just suffocates any opportunity and goodwill for this to happen. And so also, I mean, also what's happening is not only are you draining the humanity from these people to see their fellow man, you're, as the war progresses, you're just draining any sort of pride that they had mm-hmm. or inspiration to be there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So you just have these hundreds of thousands of people in a situation that they do not want to be in, but they cannot escape, and they ha- they are being forced to inflict horrors beyond all imagining against each other and that's it yeah not to mention like you said they don't they didn't even move like yeah they they could maybe move like five miles in three years yeah yeah it's like it just feels like so not worth it it's demoralizing yeah like imagine being in the same trench every single day for years and accomplishing nothing right and like and why were you there in the first place again? Oh yeah, because a prince, not your prince, just a prince was killed in a city that you have probably never heard of. And because like five other nations, again, not your nation, had all these vested interests, they decide to like get into a battle royale and you end up there. Like the absurdity of the situation mm-hmm. and the horror of it, like... It's very dark. (laughs) It's very sad and dark. Like again in the holiday spirit, uh, the the (laughs) song "Auld Lang Syne." Yeah, that we sing at New Year's and like oh, um, well they there's a incidence of troops taking the tune of that song and singing. We're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. Yeah. (laughs) that sums it up reason we're just here and so the war doesn't have a happy ending it goes on for four more years two million people die wow half of those civilians it spreads a worldwide pandemic that goes on to kill more millions of peoples he said it sets up structured political turmoil that leads to another world war that's even deadlier and more destructive and yeah Uh, but it's like this war is like a linchpin of so many modern history trends like communism bolshevik russia happens because world war one um colonialism colonialism starts happening uh united nations becomes a thing because world war Mm one um like all this stuff happens and it's just this war is such a convoluted and depressing thing. And the tale of the Christmas truce is like this one thing mm-hmm. that brings any amount of hope or positive narrative to it. And so that England elevates the Christmas truce. They're really mm-hmm. like one of the few places that actually like say oh yeah this thing happened and we got a lot of evidence showing it and it it's one of the only things that like sticks out in a world war one narrative other than just the depressing darkness circling around us <laughs> oh my god i want to die <laughs> the, like the horrors of like mechanized trench warfare yes yeah. <laughs> it is the one thing we got is 
Yeah. We had a Christmas tree. They Which had like, a Christmas party. A yeah. Christmas in, party? In the trenches. <laughs> like, it's so sad. Especially when, like, you think about... Like, that was a good, like, I, like, it was a good point when you think about the Christmas tree. You're like, how nice. But then I didn't really, I guess, think about now, until now, that then the war just kept going for, like, years. Yeah. Like, that's horrific, truly. And it's just sad. And all the 20th century, like, after World War One, is just a really interesting, like, I guess when you look at history through the lens of, like, Knowing that World War Two was an inevitability because of the end of World War One, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see all of the like, not even just forces in Europe, but the forces in like Asia, like marching towards the eventual conclusion that is like World War Two. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I'm a very big World War Two nerd. That's like my war of choice to talk about. Yeah, as all history majors who listen to the podcast know, we all have a war of choice, and mine is World War Two. Not an, un- an unpopular war, but it is just really interesting when you think about World War One as sort of a pre. It's hard because for me, like I think World War Two is so interesting, and to me, everything about World War One and like the years after it is just a precursor to World War Two. Mm. But it is interesting to think of it kind of separate from World War Two as this entirely own yeah event that I think it's it's. I'm guilty of not doing that enough. Like I think of it very much as like sort of you know, World War Two Part One. Mm. And it's not, you know, it, it's interesting to think about all the ways in which it was different and unique. And it definitely led to, I mean, so many other conflicts in Europe, even besides World War Two, happened as a result of World War One. Yeah, it, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say like things are inevitable in history, like that's not how history works. No. But World War One. part of its tragedy is that while this war might have been avoidable, a war like this was bound to happen because of the attitudes of the world at the time mm-hmm. and because people forgot. Like, they forgot how horrible we could be to each other, basically. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, wars, that's fine. It, you know, and... Uh, uh, they just had not had to, but like because of all these converging forces and international trends, it just culminates in this to where like the longer that they waited, the more terrible it was going to get. And it just happened to get to this one point where it blows up in this way spectacularly, but doesn't yeah. even blow up enough to be able to like resolve things enough to prevent the next the next big conundrum because like this war sapped so much of the human it it ends completely like this idea of a Pax Britannia concert of Europe of mm-hmm. oh yeah we're all in this brand new world millennialism oh we're going off into this you know Jules Verne type utopia yeah. and then boom this happens and then you get you know the lost generation Mm -hmm. or you know the reason why these war reparations for germany were so harsh and vindictive and i mean it's just god yeah no it's a good point it's so interesting because you're right nothing in history is ever inevitable like there's always the opportunity to learn from the past and like not repeat the mistakes and the wars and the horrors of like our you know our past 
I think it's it's just interesting when you look at all the the factors that led into World War One and then into World War Two, mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's crazy how at the time, right? Like all of these countries and all these nations and all these you know players in the world stage did not really realize, I guess, that they were in a chess game in which mm-hmm. the conclusion was going to be World War Two. And it's interesting how even now, I think studying history is so important because you can see trends happen in the past but then you can also apply them to to modern day like it's really interesting to be able to see like the cultural trends and the political trends that are happening even now that you know in 50 years people will be talking about as like precursors to some large event i mean it's just interesting when you know that you're everyone's always living through history but it's interesting when you study history you kind of get a sense of like what the history that you're living through that people will study will be and I think that it's interesting when you look at something like World War One and World War Two as sort of connected pieces and, you know, a much larger symptom of what was going on underneath the surface in all of these different places in Europe and yeah. globally. I mean, a lot of these wars have a lot to do with colonialism mm-hmm. in other continents. Um, and a lot of these fights and these resentments were a direct result of territories and colonies that these countries wanted and did or didn't get yeah and so the the one thing that i like truly take out of the story of the christmas truce is the fact that it is like the penultimate example to illustrate how hate and violence and vitriol are not things that we humans are naturally well at doing for prolonged periods of time like those have to be taught and it has to be stoked up and actively enforced by those in seats who have ulterior motives whether it be war profiteering because they make money off of the bombs getting dropped on people or that uh you know it's all this other stuff and they have to actively brainwash effectively the people fighting these wars to keep fighting them for and be these like this brutal way and they are not thinking on any sort of the same scale of what is best to help the people fighting these wars to get them home or to help those waiting for them to come home, right? To look at this human misery in this way that World War One like epitomizes mm-hmm. like true hatred for war and what it brings, especially when the motivations for these wars are so divorced from the people actively fighting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't understand how you can do anything other than hate. I mean, obviously no one likes war, but, like, it's very hard to justify a lot of things. This is true. Unless you're a military contractor. Yeah, I mean, Raytheon, you know. Yeah, Lockheed Martin, they they love war. Wait, what? I get $500,000 a year? Okay, yeah, that buys my moral compass for (laughs) a few years, and I'll just go into my alcohol budget until I can't live with myself. Real. So, it's yeah. easy as that. I saw this really funny t-shirt on Instagram that was like, I sold my soul to make $90,000 a year in Lockheed Martin. 
Do you guys remember that Twitter thread about the uh, the person who? This was so really funny. A couple years ago, you should. But it was like this person was getting on Twitter talking about working at Lockheed Martin. And all these people were like in the comments being like, you're a horrible person. Like, do you know what Lucky Martin does? Like, you have blood on your hands. Do you know what Lucky Martin does? <laughs> like, what? like, they were like, you are like a horrible person for working at Lockheed Martin. Like, you know, just, you know, just basically being like, you work for like a war profiteering, like mm-hmm. murder machine you company. You work for the devil. <laughs> yeah. Like, you are literally like dropping bombs on children for a living. Like, mm. how do you sleep at night? And this person responded and was like i'm trans and disabled i don't have any other options what? we're like i think that you do have problems <laughs> but it was, it was a classic like twitter 2017 moment and if anyone remembers um where you were when that tweet that that thread popped onto your timeline like would love to hear no it's also like the uh memes of like Oh, no, they're dropping bombs on us. Oh, it's okay, though. It has a pride flag on it. It's fine. I feel so honored to be part of history. It was dropped by a woman. Oh, my gosh. No, it's, like, literally when, like, it gives the exact same energy as people who, like, love Margaret Thatcher because they're, like, she was such a girl boss. It's, like, do you know what Margaret Thatcher did? Yeah, no, me loving my U.S. history teacher with all her drone dropping. And I was, like... (laughs) Maybe that's not as girl boss as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, People of the podcast weigh in. Um, is it girl bossing when a woman is the dro- is the one dropping bombs? <laughs> Yikes. I would say no. I, don't, I yeah. would consider that not girl bossing. Um, but, you know, hashtag feminism, women need to be drafted to equal rights, equal fights. <clears throat> that has no. the exact same energy as when someone's like, if women want to be equal, I should be allowed to punch them in the face. Yeah, I would love to be punched in the face. I could do it right now. Okay, but it would be, but it's okay because I'm also. <laughs> no, that was a sound effect. No one actually was harmed in the making of this podcast. Ah, episode. Oh, Ashlyn, but... why? Oh no, Kelly, no, don't. Uh, uh, I'm dead. <laughs> mm. uh, so yeah, on that note. Uh, wish all the listeners a Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Hopefully, the spirit of the season is comes upon you this year and every year. Spirit of peace, joy, and understanding for all your fellow human beings. Um, Except for people who don't let you over and cut you off in traffic. <laughs> yeah, no, they can die. <laughs> so whoever you're beefing with this this <laughs> holiday season. <laughs> Go call a truce. Call a truce. Christmas Eve to maybe New Year's. Yeah, go shake hands, long. share a cigarette, yeah. kick around a soccer ball. Yeah, kick some cans. Share together. some brewskis. Yeah, put up a Christmas tree. If you and then if it. it doesn't work, shoot em. Use some chlorine gas. Oh yeah. There go. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, okay. So yeah, I, that's perfect note to perfect end note. Story on so. uh yeah, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's topic, please tell your friends about us. And for those who want to go a bit deeper into the sources, I'll put them down in the show notes for y'all. I'm also going to put some resources down in the show notes for those of you who feel inclined and are able to give some monetary assistance to those around the world 
who are currently in the grip of war or widespread violence during this time, and may they see peace soon. Mm -hmm. Our instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on Upbeat.io. As always, we'd like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's History, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Merry Christmas again, and Happy New Year! Bye-bye.